Trinity is the very thing that keeps the Christian doctrine of God as Christian. Today being Trinity Sunday, we shall affirm this fundamental Christian doctrine by looking at the revelation of the Trinity in our text and relationships within the Trinity it reveals. And the message I have for us today is, imitate the Trinity in submission and glorification. We begin with a quick exposition of our passage from the Gospel of John. This short passage is a section of the final discourse that Jesus delivered to his disciples. The conversation took place during the celebration of the Passover. Jesus had washed his disciples' feet. Everyone had reclined at table to eat supper. Then Judas Iscariot went out to betray his master. Now, in the limited time that Jesus has with the remaining disciples, he prepares them for an upcoming crisis, the crisis of Jesus leaving. You see, after his death and resurrection, Jesus was going to ascend to the heavenly realm to be with the Father. He cannot return to earth and his disciples cannot follow him until the Father's appointed time. The disciples will experience great grief and sorrow over the loss of their beloved master. On top of that, they will face ridicule and persecution because their Messiah has disappeared. On top of that, they will start to argue and be divided over Jesus' teachings, which they still don't quite understand. And to top it all off, under these trying circumstances, they may lose their faith. The ascension of Jesus presents a multi-tiered crisis for the disciples because they will no longer have their teacher, protector and friend to help and to guide. In preparation for this crisis, Jesus promises to stand the spirit of truth to be with them forever. The spirit will be another kind, another helper, that is the same kind of teacher that Jesus has been to them. And our short passage is a portion of this reassuring conversation. With the crisis as the background, we may begin to understand what Jesus is saying in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus has more secrets concerning the kingdom of God that he wants to reveal. However, because the news of his ascension has already left his disciples quite depressed, Jesus knew that any more words will fall on deaf ears. Hence, he held back. What are the many things that Jesus wanted to say, and have we missed out on them because the disciples could not receive them? Well, Jesus says in verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Even though Jesus didn't have the time and opportunity, he already knew that at the opportune time, the Holy Spirit will teach these things to the church. And the Spirit has indeed come, and he has revealed the secrets he left unsaid. We can read about these many things in the New Testament. In the last two verses of our text, Jesus reassures the disciples that whatever the Spirit teaches can be traced back to Jesus and the Father. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father have is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So even though much of the New Testament did not come from the horse's mouth, as it were, they are the words of Jesus because he gave them to the Spirit, who then inspired human authors to write them down. 
With this superficial exposition of the text, we must now come to our main points. First, the revelation of the Trinity. Jesus reveals the Trinity by explicitly referring to the other persons. In verse 5, sorry, in verse 13, he speaks of the Spirit of truth. And verse 15, the Father. Notice that Jesus is not talking about me, myself, and I. He did not say, there is me, my spirit, and actually, I'm also the Father. But he says, I am the Son, you are my Father, and He is the Spirit. I, you, and Him. Three are identified and spoken of here. Jesus also reveals the Trinity when He speaks of the interaction between persons. The Father shares what He has with the Son. The Spirit takes what belongs to the Father and the Son. Now, the Father cannot truly have shared anything with the Son if the Son were not distinct from the Father. That's cheating. Nor the Spirit takes anything from the Son if the Spirit were not another person from the Son. There are three interacting with each other. Three are spoken of and the three interact. But there is only one God. How can this be? To quote Sherlock Holmes, once we eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, how, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Since it is impossible for Jesus to lie, therefore God is in three persons. Each person has his own distinct consciousness. Each person has his own independent action. I didn't steal this from the refreshment ministry, don't worry. Where was I? Yes. Yet this distinction of persons does not mean division in God. The one whole essence of God resides undivided in each of the three. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The three are co-eternal and co-equal. Three persons, one God. Yet their being equal does not mean being identical. The one God is known in three different persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Each person is God in his own right. God repeated three times. Yet this distinction of persons does not mean division in God. But no division doesn't mean that they are identical. Not being identical doesn't mean that they're not equal. Let's put them away. We are beginning to speak in circles, but it is necessary when we speak of the Trinity. Otherwise, we'll start believing in three gods, or invent a Unitarian God, or some other inventions. Let's move on. Intra-Trinitarian relationships may be described in terms of begetting and proceeding, and this is what the Nicene Creed has done. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Similarly, the Athanasius Creed says, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. This is why we don't read Adonisius Creed. Very confusing. Yeah. You can go and chew on it yourself. 
And this is how we may describe their relationships and distinguish each of them. Our gospel passage reveals two characteristics about intra-Trinitarian relationships. First, the relationships within the Trinity are characterized by submission. In verse 13, Jesus says, The Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but the Spirit will speak what it hears from Jesus. This means that the Spirit submits to the will and authority of the Son. And from other parts of the Bible, we know that Jesus is not, however, the final authority. He speaks on the authority of the Father. For example, in John 8, 28, Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So just as the Spirit submits to the Son, the Son submits to the will and authority of the Father. Based on this arrangement of authority and submission, there appears to be some form of order within the Trinity. First the Father, and then the Son, and lastly the Holy Spirit. But since we have said that Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, this cannot mean that there is a pecking order within God. The Son is not subordinate to the Father, and the Spirit is not the lowest God form. If it's not the pecking order, then what is it? The reformer John Calvin suggests that this order describes how God is towards humankind. I understand him to mean this is the order in which God deals with humankind. Humankind first experiences God, the Father, the one who creates. The Father is seen as the beginning of all things. He's the source of all activity, including the plan of salvation. Then humankind experiences God the Son, the person who incarnates. He is the wisdom of God who became flesh to reveal the plan of the Father. Finally, humankind experiences God the Spirit, the one who perfects. The Spirit is the power from on high who accomplishes the plan of the Father revealed through the Son. Therefore, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not a pecking order in the Trinity. It is a progressive order in which God deals with humankind. Therefore, when we mention the Trinity, we must follow Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't say Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. Father, Spirit, Son, don't know what kind of permutation, don't. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's keep to this order. But remember, even though we experience three persons in succession over time, it is the same God who is working. So that God is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of our salvation. The absence of a pecking order makes the presence of authority and submission within the Trinity a rather radical idea. After all, the world's idea of submission is based on inequality, like it or not. In school, we submit to our lecturers because they have more knowledge and are wiser compared to us. At work, we submit to our seniors and superiors because they're more competent and experienced. When we play sports, we submit to the captain or the most valuable player because they are more skillful and successful. Because worldly submission is based on knowledge inequality, power inequality, and physical inequality, we find it hard to respect teachers who cannot answer our questions, supervisors who are younger than us, and captains who have two left feet. 
The Christian idea of submission, however, is radically different from the world's conception. The Trinity has revealed to us that godly submission is not based on inequality, since the three persons are co-equal in wisdom and power and co-eternal in experience. Godly submission is based on love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. The Spirit allows the Son to have power over him because the Spirit believes the Son will not disgrace him, but will honour him. The Son allows the Father to have power over him because the Son trusts that the Father will not abuse, but will glorify him. The Father himself is subject to no one, so that God is sovereign over all. No more cups. Submission within the Trinity is based on the eternal loving relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Humankind are made in the image of God, and Christ has redeemed us so that we may be restored to his likeness. For this reason, Christians should imitate the form of submission found in the Trinity, a godly submission based on pre-existing loving relationships. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes about submission within the marriage union and within the church. If we think about it, these two institutions of God are not so different from the Trinity. Just as the Trinity is three in one God, the married couple is two in one flesh. The husband and the wife are both created in the image of God. They are not identical, but they are equal before God. And God has commanded wives to submit to their own husbands, not other people's husbands, their own husbands. And at the same time, husbands are commanded to love their wives. In God's design, wives submit to husbands when they trust that their husbands love them. A wife will obey what her husband says and follow what he want, how he wants things to be done if she is certain that he has her best interests at heart. And a loving husband who makes his wife trust him will find that he has authority over his household. Submission is based on pre-existing love. In the same way, the church is many in one body. As our Anglican liturgy goes, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. While each individual member of the body is specially created and uniquely gifted, we are united under Christ our head. Therefore, in spite of our distinctions, there are no divisions. And God has commanded the church to love one another. And Ephesians says, submit to each other. In God's design, Christians should submit to those whom God has appointed to authority in our Anglican context, namely the bishops, priests, and deacons. But at the local community level, this means submission also to our ECC members, our church leaders, uh, ministry leaders, and CGLs. No doubt some of our leaders will have lower qualifications than you, less influence in the church, less connections in society. Some may even lack skills and resources. However, we are all equal before God. God does not follow worldly standards, but he decides who to appoint according to his wisdom. 
Thus, we submit to our clergy and church leaders, even though they may not be better than us. We respect and support the way they choose to run the church. On the other hand, our leaders are responsible for making decisions which demonstrates love and care for our community. For example, we're starting to provide post-service refreshments. The Sunday service wants to serve Tao Suan, but the Saturday service wants to eat cupcakes, young people food. Since homemade Tao Suan will always be cheaper than off-the-shelf cupcakes, shall our leaders therefore authorize more budget to the Saturday service than to the Sunday service? Yesterday, they said yes, very loudly. Shall our leaders invite our members to make comparisons between services, tempt them to be envious, stress out our refreshment teams, and distract everyone from the whole point of providing refreshments in the first place? By no means. This decision would be unloving. Post-service refreshment, starting today, is introduced to break ice with people who are new or visiting our church. It is a provision so that we may stay back for conversation without starving each other. It is not meant to be filling. It is not a chance to cook or eat or buy what we usually have no chance to enjoy. If you're very hungry, please go for lunch. If you crave something extravagant, eat it in private. If you want to display your culinary skills, invite people to your home. But our post-service refreshment is a loving gesture to facilitate fellowship among members and guests. For this reason, the refreshment teams and all of us should submit to our budget, as our church leaders have decided. The refreshment teams should not feel pressured to top up the budget from their own wallet to delight the congregation. I can say that because I was from the refreshment ministry and it's very tempting. And the rest of us should be grateful for whatever is being served. Don't know what's for refreshment litter, but yeah. Relationships within the Trinity are characterized by submission and also glorification. In verse 14, Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me. And in other parts of the gospel, we also see the Trinity glorifying and being glorified by each other. Take for instance, in chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What does it mean to glorify? Johannine scholar Richard Balcom suggests that John the Evangelist uses glorify in two senses. One, glorify means to honor or to praise. Two, it means to endow with visible splendor. Hence, when we say that the Trinity glorifies each other, we mean that they let people see each other's majesty. The Father gave Jesus visible splendor, for example, during the transfiguration. Jesus' face was shining like the sun and his clothes became white as light. The Son put the Father's love into visible action when he came down in the flesh to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His dying on the cross is God's visible glory. And the Word of God made the Spirit visible by describing him to be like a dove from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire. 
When the Trinity glorify each other, we also mean that they bring honor and praise. When Jesus performed miracles, people gave praise to God. When Jesus says the Spirit is another helper, he declares the Spirit to be equal with God. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity, out of their love, seek to promote the reputation and glory of each other. My primary school teacher told me this once. The only people in the world who would not be jealous of you are your parents because they love you. They glory in your glory. I believe there is some truth in this. And from this human point of view, perhaps we may begin to appreciate love and glory within the Trinity. How can we imitate the Trinity in glorifying others? Certainly, we're all quite good at giving praises and affirming one another. But can we go further than that? The Father glorifies the Son by resurrecting Him, but not before the Son has suffered and died. Can we glorify one another in the same way, by challenging and supporting each other to do tough but good works for God, trusting in the fact that God will reward His servants? Incidentally, we are trying to form a committee for church camp in 2023. How many of you in the committee? Okay, so everybody available. Can we encourage somebody to take on a role in this committee? And when they accept the challenge, can we honour them by joining the subcommittees to support their work? The Son glorifies the Father by submitting to the Father's plan of salvation, which involves his own suffering and death. Can we glorify one another in the same way by submitting to each other even if it means sacrificing ourselves? Take, for example, the question of when to meet for care group, Friday nights, Saturday nights, or Sunday afternoons. Whichever day it is, there is really no right or wrong answer. It all boils down to individual preferences. And frankly speaking, a lot of group decisions are really a matter of what's most convenient. Every option is viable, but none will please everyone. Can we glorify our CGLs and submit to their decisions for the group, even if it means that we are inconvenienced sometimes? Finally, the Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son by reminding and convicting people of the significance of Jesus' suffering and death. Can we glorify each other by witnessing to each other's abilities and providing opportunities for them to perform? As you can probably tell, our upcoming Christian education courses are aimed to train up lay teachers and preachers. And can I tell you something? I planned these courses with Ravi in mind. You see, Ravi was not confident that he could preach the word of God. But I believe he could, if only he knew what to do. I mean, if he could impact lives through copy sessions, then he can preach. If he just knew how to string his conversations together into a sermon, throw in some jokes. I believe there are more of him 
among us. The Spirit, who is gracious with his gifts, did not just raise up a handful of us to preach. I'm sure there are more of you, just that you lack opportunity and training. Hence, I encourage you to glorify someone you know by nudging them to sign up for the courses. And don't worry, we're not going to make everyone stand at the pulpit, I'll lose my job. But certainly, there is room for you to share in small groups, other people's care groups, prayer meetings, etc. Allow me to conclude. Our triune God in his very nature is a self-sufficient, three-person community where there is twice the submission and thrice the glory in one God. It is a wonderful community where anything said and done is understood and affirmed perfectly by everyone. Everyone wants the others to be known, to be seen, to be praised and worshipped. Within the Trinity, we see the goodness of God. This God created us, and more than one of us, so that we may also be in a similarly wonderful community, without jealousy, nor competition, without hatred, nor conflict, always believing, always giving. In this community of God, you are known and respected by her. She is trusted and honoured by me. And I am appreciated and magnified by you. Knowing this to be the good that God desires for humankind, let us imitate the Trinity in loving submission and glorification so that God will be glorified in us and us in him. Amen.